You're listening to the Brandon Women's Bible Study Podcast, led by Leslie Ann Jones. Hey y'all, this is Leslie Ann. Thanks for listening in. This week in class, we talked about 1 Samuel chapters 3 through 6 and discussed God's glorious victory over the Philistines. In these chapters, he does whatever is necessary to establish his rule and make his glory known in the hearts of people both near and far. The teaching corresponds with the material covered on pages 26 to 41 of the workbook, available for download at thevillagechurch.net. So, when I was a little girl, maybe this happened to you too with your parents, my parents had all these things that they used to say that I swore I would never say, never, ever, ever, when I became a grown-up, um, momisms, if you will. But I find myself saying those things sometimes. One of them is, don't you look at me like that. Or, I've got eyes in the back of my head. I know what's going on there. <laughs> yeah, I know what you're doing. Um, do you guys have any momisms or parentisms that you swore you would never say? Or things that your parents said that drove you crazy? Any yeah, special I ones? <laughs> because I said so. Yep. Right? So that's actually what I was leading up to is the because I said so, but because you brought it up, (laughs) because you said so, we'll go ahead and get there. Um, I used to feel like I needed to explain myself to my children, but I don't anymore. Like, because I said it, that should be enough, you know. So my parents, my mom had plenty of one-liners in her arsenal, you know, like things she should just pop off and, you know, exactly what she meant. Um, But that one... The because I said so, that just rubbed me the wrong way. I did not like it. I don't. I know that will surprise you about me, that I'm kind of fiercely independent. I like to do things my way. I do not like to be told. Um, so that created some difficulty for me growing up. But, I mean, that one, it, I mean, my mom could use it for all sorts of situations. You know, why can't I have chocolate cake for supper? Because I said so. Why can't I stay out later? Because I said so. Why do I have to clean my room? Because I said so. Why do I have to go to church? Because I said so. I mean, she used it all the time to cover all sorts of situations. And the thing is, she would say that one, but then there was another one that was like one step above it that was really like, don't mess with me anymore. You you knew you were on like thin ice when she brought that one out. And it was, because I'm your mother, that's why. And if she ever brought that one out, then you knew you were in trouble. Like, you better step back. Because what she meant by that was, I am your mother. I am in charge here. You better remember it. Do not forget who is in charge. And so (laughs) I find myself not necessarily saying, because I'm your mother, that's why, but because the girls and I, our thing is, who's in charge? We ask them all the time, now, who's in charge? And they know the answer, and it is not them. They are not the ones who are in charge. As much as they would like to think they are, they are not. Well, when I read this story that we had today in Samuel about the Israelites and the ark and the battle that they lost, I can't help but think of things like that because the Israelites had forgotten who was in charge. And by the time we get to chapter 4, you know, we've already covered the past few weeks. We know that things are bad in Israel. We know that the high priesthood is a mess. We know that the temple is kind of a joke. Their sacrificial system is falling to pieces. Nothing's going the way it's supposed to. There was no king. The people did what was right in their own eyes. And everything was just going to hell in a handbasket real fast. But God, like my mother 
so often did with me was going to remind them exactly what he expected of them in a way that was designed to get their attention and remind them that he was in charge and he would not surrender his glory to anyone else. And it wasn't a pleasant experience because they were going to find out the hard way that the Lord their God is a God who keeps his word, upholds his glory, and demands reverence. And those are the three things that we're going to see as we move through here. So in the first chapter, in chapter 4, we see the Lord keeping his word. Even when that word is a difficult word, even when that word is a terrible, horrible judgment against his own people, that's what we see happening. So um, let's start reading in verse 1. It says, And the word of Samuel came to all Israel. Now Israel went out to battle against the Philistines. They encamped at Ebenezer, and the Philistines encamped at Aphek. The Philistines drew up in line against Israel. And when the battle spread, Israel was defeated by the Philistines, who killed about 4,000 men on the field of battle. And when the troops came to the camp, the elders of Israel said, Why has the Lord defeated us today before the Philistines? Let us bring the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord here from Shiloh, that it may come among us and save us from the power of our enemies. So the people sent to Shiloh and brought from there the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord of Hosts, who is enthroned on the cherubim. And the two sons of Eli, Hophni and Phinehas, were there with the Ark of the Covenant of God. So these verses start with a reminder that the word of Samuel came to all Israel. Now what was the word of Samuel that he received in chapter 3? Do you remember? The doom. It was not a good message. It was, in fact, the prophecy itself said it was a word that would give anyone who heard it tingling ears their ears will tingle when they hear what's going to happen to the house of Eli and it was a word of strict harsh very severe judgment to Eli's house so you would think that since that sort of word had come to all Israel that they would be expecting this judgment to come to pass and yet it seems like they're still what's going on here why why is this happening to us what is going on? And so it, it, there's this sense where they're still a little bit clueless, even though they should have been clued in by now. And they go out to battle against the Philistines. Now, the Philistines were Israel's neighbors to the west. They occupied a slim strip of land between Israel and the Mediterranean Sea. Philistine, okay, modern-day Palestine gets its name from Philistia, the Philistines. And so the animosity that is between Israel and Palestine goes back a long way, okay? A long, long way. They are still fighting over that little strip of land, even today. So scholars think that the Philistines traveled across the Mediterranean and arrived in Canaan about the same time that the Israelites escaped from Egypt and landed in Canaan. They feature prominently in Judges, so that's, you see Samson in the temple in Gath, like we talked about earlier, pushing down the temple. And um, this is the first time that we see him in Samuel, but it's not going to be the last. They're going to they're gonna pop up again and again and again until David, eventually, when he is king, um, conquers them. But apparently, at this point in the story, they wanted to expand their territory, because their territory, it's right there on the border between Israel and Philistia. And Israel goes out to meet them in battle. Okay, so the other character that comes to play here that we're introduced to, I guess, in the chapter is the Ark of the Covenant. Which, did you do the count? How many times did you count it? It told you to count in your homework how many times. I don't know if I'm right or not, by the way. 
Oh, I got 36. Um, it's on page 27. I counted 36 throughout the whole time. <clears throat> it's okay. You're allowed not to. Somewhere between 29 and 36, that's a lot of times. And it shows up a lot to point out, like, the Ark of the Covenant is a main character here. If you were going to name a main character in this story, it's not the people of Israel. It's the Ark of the Covenant. It's the only, you know, it travels through all three of these chapters and is the center of what's going on. So the Ark of the Covenant was the center of Israelite worship. God instructed Moses to build it along with the rest of the tabernacle way back in Exodus. And there were specific instructions about the Ark of the Covenant and what you were supposed to do with it, how you were supposed to approach it. It was the physical place where God chose to dwell among the people of Israel. It was the place where God would meet with their priest on the Day of Atonement when the priests went into the Holy of Holies to offer sacrifice for forgiveness of sins. It was a physical and tangible reminder of God's presence among the people. But there were very specific instructions regarding it. It was not supposed to be touched with human hands. So it had this pole and like loop system where people carried it. People were only certain people carried it through its travels in the wilderness and and such it was also not something that was to be out for common consumption i don't know how to explain this it was supposed to be kept in the holy of holies like not just in the tabernacle not just in one room in the tabernacle but in a room inside a room in the tabernacle it was in the most holy place it was only to be entered one time a year and only by the high priest because it was sacred. It was that important. It was a wooden box. It was covered by solid gold. And there were these two cherubim, like fierce looking angels, not nice little precious moments angels, but one on either side whose wings like stretched out over the middle. Their wings met in the middle. And it is said that in there, that space in between the two cherubim hovering above the Ark of the Covenant is where the glory of God rested when he met with the people. I'm not real sure about how, what that would look like. I have no real idea. I can only envision it. But the whole point is that it was a sacred object not to be trifled with. It was central to their worship. All of that said, it did have military significance, especially in Joshua when they fought the Battle of Jericho and marched around the city seven times. The Ark of the Covenant went with them. And so it's not exactly entirely off base for them to think, we'll bring the Ark of the Covenant out and God will fight this battle for us and we will win. But that's not exactly ha what happened. Um, let's take a look and see what happens. They go out, it says they go out to meet the Philistines in battle, and they're defeated badly. I personally think 4,000 men is a lot. Yeah. I mean, that's not, that's not small. They, they lose 4,000 men. And when they're defeated, they look at each other and they ask, why has the Lord defeated us? So they know that it's the Lord who has done this to them. They're under no um, illusions here. They know that the God of their fathers has abandoned them in this moment. But they look at each other. It's like us sitting in this room and being like, why did this happen? 
But then that's it. They don't ask Samuel, who has just been, you know, anointed, not anointed, wrong word. He has just been freshly minted as the prophet of God. You know, they don't ask him. They don't pray. They don't tear their garments. They don't weep. They don't ask for forgiveness. They don't repent. Like, they never think that they've done anything wrong to deserve this. They just say, why did God do this to us? I don't know. What should we do? And so they use their own human reasoning to come up with a solution to the problem. They don't ask for God's direction. They don't ask for his help. And if you look carefully at the words that they use in verse 3, it says, Let us bring the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord here from Shiloh, that it may come among us and save us. They're not really interested in God. They're interested in what he can do for them. They're not interested in the God of the covenant. They just want the power of the God of their covenant. Why? So he can save us from the power of our enemies. They are more concerned about the power of the enemy army than they are about the power of God. They should have been trembling with fear of the Lord because of the word of Samuel that had apparently come to them. But they completely disregarded that. And they could only see what was right in front of their eyes at that time. Which, let's be real, that was a real threat. You know, there's a powerful army standing in front of them. But they should have been more concerned with what God was going to do than with what the other army was going to do. So what happens next? Let's read the next verses. It says, As soon as the Ark of the Covenant came, Ark of the Covenant of the Lord came into the camp, all Israel gave a mighty shout, so that the earth resounded. And when the Philistines heard the noise of the shouting, they said, What does this great shouting in the camp of the Hebrews mean? And when they learned that the Ark of the Lord had come to the camp, the Philistines were afraid, for they said, A God has come into the camp. And they said, Woe to us, for nothing like this has happened before. Woe to us. Who can deliver us from the power of these mighty gods? They're more concerned about deliverance from the Lord than Israel is. Now they're off base in their understanding of who God is. But they're more afraid of his power than his own people are. These are the gods who struck the Egyptians with every sort of plague in the wilderness. Take courage and be men, O Philistines, lest you become slaves to the Hebrews as they have been to you. Be men and fight. So the people of Israel send to Shiloh, which is about 20 miles away, ask them to bring the Ark of the Covenant. And it ought to be this sense of, you know, flashing lights going off. When you see who's riding alongside the Ark of the Covenant, it's Hophni and Phinehas. So you know that something bad is going to happen. But they send for the Ark of the Covenant like it's a good luck charm. Like if we just bring this out, we'll be fine, surely. God will not allow the ark to fall. Surely we can't lose. See, we've got God with us. And the thing that's most terrifying about this is that they didn't know how wrong they were. And I wonder how often we do the same sort of thing. Like, let's just slap a little Jesus label on it. You know, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. When we take that and try to apply it to every bit of situation in our lives that has nothing to do with God's original intention. Like, you know, it doesn't matter how we live. If we just pray, God will forgive us. Or or the kind of vows that we make to God. You know, God, if you let me do this, then I'll do this. 
or we carry on with our own plans that we have devised without any kind of input. We haven't sought the Lord's direction. We have just, and I do that. I mean, I'm guilty of this. Make my own plans for what I think is best and what the next right step should be for my family or, or what we need to do in the future. And then I'm like, okay, God, will you please bless this? Instead of seeking the Lord all along. It's like God is an afterthought to us sometimes. Or maybe that's just me. Instead of having the place of central importance where he should have been all along. If he was enthroned in my heart the way that he should be, then I wouldn't have to ask for his blessing at the last minute. After I've already laid out all the plans, the plans would have been laid by him in my heart. And so they bring out the Ark of the Covenant like it's a good luck charm. They think they're going to win, but they were wrong. And it's so telling to see how much more fear of the Lord the Philistines had than they did. They knew what had happened in Egypt. They knew what happened to the enemies of the Lord, and they were afraid. But rather than crumbling and cowering under their fear, they man up. I mean, can't you just imagine the kind of Braveheart moment they had? Be men! Let's go! And they win. They go into the battle knowing that they are fighting the same God who defeated Egypt. They know that Israel's God had the power to crush them. But Israel is the one who ends up crushed instead. So what happened here? What happened? How could God let this happen? So the Philistines fought and Israel was defeated and they fled every man to his home. And there was a very great slaughter, for there fell of Israel 30,000 foot soldiers. And the ark of God was captured, and the two sons of Eli, Hophni and Phinehas, died. So why was God with them in Jericho when the ark was there with them in Jericho, and not with them here? Against them, I guess is more, more apt of a description. Hmm? Their, hearts their hearts changed. That's they exactly right. The ark. They thought they were going to be able to use it, and they used it to not God. Like God is their trump card. Or play this right now. Right. The ark was never meant to be an idol in the sense that other nations had idols. Like they thought their God actually dwelt in the thing. The the ark of the covenant was supposed to be the footstool of God's throne, where just like a portion of His glory, He chose to meet with them there. So in your homework, you read about the blessings and curses that went along with the covenant, right? There's a section in Deuteronomy, a couple of verses that you're supposed to go back and read. So what is a covenant? Well, simply put, a covenant is a contractual agreement between two parties. There are obligations that both parties have to uphold in the covenant, and there are usually penalties built in if either party fails to uphold their side of the bargain. So in Old Testament history, there are several different covenants that God makes with his people. The one that's coming into play here is the one that was made between God and Israel at Mount Sinai with Moses as their leader. So the agreement basically is that he would be their God and they would be his people. They were to keep the covenant the terms of the covenant are the laws of the Old Testament. They were to live by these laws. And if they kept the covenant, they would receive the blessings that were promised by it, namely God's protection, 
his presence, the land that they were supposed to inherit. So there was all of that. But if they neglected the covenant and scorned the law, they could expect curses to come, including the removal of God's protection. And that's what you see at play here. One of those verses that you looked up was Deuteronomy 28, 25. This, the Lord will cause you to be defeated before your enemies. You shall go out one way against them and flee seven ways before them. And so that's what we see here. They counted on the blessings of the covenant, but they didn't uphold their side. And so they got curses instead. They should have expected it, but they didn't. And it just goes to show us that the penalty for sin is serious. Because the way that things were going in Israel at that time was not good. We heard about the list of sins that the priesthood was engaged in at that time. And we know that there are probably individuals who were not living that way. I mean, we know that from Ruth, the story of Ruth. We know that from Hannah's story and her family. So we know that there were faithful people who were there. But as a whole... The nation was not in a good place. It tells us over and over again in the book of Judges that the people did what was right in their own eyes. And we all know that when people do whatever is right, according to what they just think or come up with or they feel like, it's not good. We need standards outside ourselves. And so this is not the first time in the Bible that Israel went up to battle expecting victory and got defeated instead. There's another battle in Joshua that comes right after Jericho. I mean, just like right on the heels of Jericho. In Joshua chapter 7, Israel was defeated at I. I think you say it I. But in Joshua 7, they were defeated because of one man's sin. The commands that God gave Israel before Jericho was that they were supposed to destroy everything. They weren't supposed to keep any of the plunder. Everything was supposed to go and be devoted to the Lord. But one man kept a few of the things, and because of one man's sin, Israel lost the next battle. But the way that Joshua responded to the loss is quite different from the way the elders of Israel responded at the beginning of the story. They looked at each other and they were like, what happened? I don't know. Joshua turned to the Lord and said, what happened? And there was sin in the camp. That's what happened. So what did Joshua do? He dealt with it. It was a hard harsh thing. Achan, that's the man who kept the things, he was dealt a severe blow by the Lord that day. But Israel was spared because after that sin was dealt with, they went up to battle against the same place again, and this time they won because the sin had been dealt with. But that's not what happens here. It's a day of calamity. 30,000 men die. The ark of God is captured. The two sons of Eli, Hophni and Phinehas, die. And we just see that God keeps his word, even when we wish he wouldn't. Even when you wish that he didn't mean what he said. I mean, as a parent, sometimes I give my children ultimatums <laughs> that I really wish I had not done. Um, we we are having an issue with table manners in our house right now. Whereas my oldest child, who just can't sit still for any reason whatsoever, she squirms and she wriggles and her feet always end up in her chair. And it is one of my pet peeves. I cannot stand it. 
I cannot tell you. I mean, and her bad fortune is to sit beside me. Like, that is where her seat is, is beside me. Probably if she sat beside Dennis, it wouldn't be so bad. But she's beside me, and I see the wriggling, and the feet come up. And sometimes they, like, hit my chair. Put your feet down. Sit up. Quit dropping your food all over yourself. Sit up. And so I have told her probably 3,073 times to sit up, put your feet down. And over the past few weeks, I've had to start saying, this is your only warning. The next time your feet end up in your chair, you'll be done. No more supper, no more dessert. You'll have to leave the table. You cannot stay at the table and sit like that. I know. It's probably like it's a silly thing, but it drives me nuts. Drives me nuts. So you can guess what happened, right? (laughs) We had lots of warnings where it actually worked, but then a few days ago... I gave her the warning, and just a few minutes later, those feet were back up in the chair. She was almost done with supper, y'all. She only had like three or four bites left on her plate, and then she could have got dessert and be done. But I was like, your feet are in your chair again. And her little face crumpled, and she got up, and she left the table because she knew that I meant what I said. You know, my word is nothing if I don't back it up. Our God is one who backs up his word, even when it's a harsh word. And the Israelites found that out on this day. There's no question here about who's responsible for Israel's loss. And it is Israel's loss. It's not God's loss. It's Israel's loss. They were defeated. But it's God who has defeated them. It's not the Philistines. It's God. Because either they had forgotten the consequences of their sin they didn't take the warning seriously. Either way, the consequences were the same. And this is where it really hits home for us. Because it's easy for us to read this passage and think, we're not like that. But we need to remember that God does not tolerate sin among his people. He will not abide where sin dwells. He will not stay there, and he will do what is necessary to root it out and deal with it. And we would do well to remember that. We're fooling ourselves if we think that our sin is any different from theirs. It's the same. The penalty for our sin and the penalty for their sin is costly. But the only thing that stands between us and the punishment that we deserve is Jesus. That's the only difference is Jesus. So let's keep reading. Verse 12. A man of Benjamin ran from the battle line and came to Shiloh the same day with his clothes torn and with dirt on his head. So these are signs of mourning. His clothes are ripped. He's dusty. He's dirty. And he runs 20 miles. It says the same day. I don't know how fast you got to be going to get there in the same day. I mean, it takes hours to run a marathon. So he gets there in the same day. He's exhausted, he's dusty, he's dirty. When he arrived, Eli was sitting on his seat by the road watching, but he doesn't see. Poor Eli, y'all. I mean, he's always the last to know. He's there waiting and watching, but it tells us in a few minutes that he's old and blind, so he completely misses it. Like, he, he does not get it. Just like he missed the point when his sons were sinning. Just like he missed everything, he didn't understand what was happening when Samuel heard God's voice in the previous chapter. He didn't get it then either. And when he receives these two prophecies against himself, one in Samuel 2, 
when the man of God comes, the unnamed man of God. The other one in 1 Samuel 3, where Samuel gets the message of God against his family. His response is like, yeah, so be it. So be it. So he's sitting by the side of the road, watching and waiting, for his heart trembled for the ark of God. And when the man came into the city and told the news, all the city cried out. When Eli heard the sound of the outcry, he said, What is this uproar? Then the man hurried and came and told Eli. Now Eli was 98 years old, and his eyes were set so that he could not see. And the man said to Eli, I am he who has come from the battle. I fled from the battle today. And he said, How did it go, my son? He who brought the news answered and said, Israel has fled before the Philistines, and there has also been a great defeat among the people. Your two sons, also Hophni and Phinehas, are dead, and the ark of God has been captured. Bad news travels fast, right? So the tribe of Benjamin, when you're reading in the Bible, details matter, okay? So the tribe of Benjamin was known as some of Israel's fiercest fighters. And so this is one of Israel's elite fierce fighters who runs from the battle, to deliver this bad news. 20 miles, his clothes are torn, he's dressed like a mourner. Eli's sitting there waiting, but he still somehow misses the news. Um, literally, everyone in the city knows what happens before he does. And he's the high priest, he's the one who should be most concerned about the ark, but he just doesn't know. Verse 18, as soon as he mentioned the ark of God, Eli fell over backward from his seat by the side of the gate, and his neck was broken, and he died. For the man was old and heavy. He had judged Israel 40 years. Now, I've always been a little perplexed by that little detail that it says that Eli was heavy. It's random, right? What does that have to do with anything? It's like an okay. Well, it's a play on words. So I've always read it and I've always thought that's bizarre. Why would that be in there? But then, for some reason, this time when I was reading it, I remembered something that one of my professors taught us about the Hebrew word for glory. He said that it comes from a word group that means to be heavy or to have a state of weightiness. So, hold on, let me see if I can do this. So, Hebrew, the way Hebrew works is that there are three consonants that make the word, and then the different vowels make it mean different things sometimes. So the root of the word is kabod. This is what it looks like. Okay, CBD, that's what it is. And then when it's glory, that's the that's how we say it is kabod. There's a little O thrown in here, okay? But the word for glory is this. The word for heavy is this. When it talks about the hardening of a heart, it's this in verbal form, okay? So what does heaviness have to do with glory? It's kind of weird, the relationship between them. But it can be used to describe a rock or a boulder that's literally physically heavy. Um, the word group also contains the word for liver, which is apparently, I did not know this until my professor said it, the heaviest organ in the body. How they knew that then, I don't know. But when you're reading in the Bible and it's talking about livers as part of the sacrifice, same word that they use for glory. So over time, though, the word came to have a bit of social significance to it. So if you have social weight, it means that you're important. 
if you throw your weight around, you're using your power. It means you have impact. And that's what glory at its heart is all about. It's the manifestation of God's weight, God's importance, His significance, His magnitude, His relevancy, His gravitas. Glory is all of that wrapped up in one thing. So when we give God glory, we're not filling up something that He lacks. It's not that He lacks glory. It means that we are recognizing His importance, His weightiness. We are bowing before how important he were he he is we are recognizing him as supremely heavy in all matters and so that's the word that's used to describe Eli here and what you're going to see what we would see if we were reading it in Hebrew is that this word appears over and over and over and over again in the rest of our passages from today when it talks about God's hand is heavy against the Philistines, it's that word. When they say, let's don't harden our hearts like the Egyptians did, it's that word. When Eli's daughter-in-law names her child Ichabod, it's, this is, it means no glory because God has left Israel. Eli dies under the bulk of his own weight. His daughter-in-law names her newborn son Ichabod because the glory of the Lord has departed from Israel. It's no longer there. Let's read those verses in verse 19. Okay. Verse 19. It says, Now his daughter-in-law, the wife of Phinehas, was pregnant, about to give birth. And when she heard the news that the ark of God was captured and that her father-in-law and her husband were dead, she bowed and gave birth, for her pains came upon her. And about the time of her death, The women attending her said to her, Do not be afraid, for you have borne a son. But she did not answer or pay attention. And she named the child Ichabod, saying, The glory has departed from Israel, because the ark of God has been captured, and because of her father-in-law and her husband. And she said, The glory has departed from Israel, for the ark of God has been captured. The glory of God has departed from Israel. He has been exiled. From Israel, captured, taken into captivity. The terrible, horrible word that God gave against Eli's house has been fulfilled. Eli's dead. Hophni's dead. Phineas is dead. The daughter-in-law is dead. There's just the newborn son left. And every time someone says his name, he'll be reminded of this terrible day in Israel. I mean, it's a day for them like Pearl Harbor or September 11th would have been and his very name would call back the memories of everything that came to pass in that day when 30,000 of their men died when the ark was captured and when God left them to their own devices for a while the enemy it seems like has won all is lost but if you know anything about God then you know that he thrives in hopeless situations And when it seems like all is lost, well, we know that that's not the end of the story because that's just not how God operates. And so in the second section that we move into in chapter 5, we see the Lord upholding his own glory. He does for himself what Israel had ceased to do. They were only concerned about themselves, but God was concerned about his glory and in making it known. 
So let's read these first five verses. It says, When the Philistines captured the Ark of God, they brought it from Ebenezer to Ashdod. Then the Philistines took the Ark of God and brought it into the house of Dagon and set it up beside Dagon. And when the people of Ashdod rose early the next day, behold, Dagon had fallen face downward on the ground before the Ark of the Lord. So they took Dagon and put him back in his place. But when they rose early on the next morning, behold, Dagon had fallen face downward on the ground before the Ark of the Lord. And the head of Dagon and both his hands were lying cut off on the threshold. Only the trunk of Dagon was left to him. This is why the priests of Dagon and all who enter the house of Dagon do not tread on the threshold of Dagon and Ashdod to this day. Y'all, his name is in that passage a lot. I felt like I just said Dagon 5,000 times. But, okay, so in the ancient Near East, for an army to capture an enemy's god in battle signaled total and complete defeat. It meant that they were just completely conquered, that there was no hope left whatsoever. And in fact, there is some archaeological evidence to show that shortly after this battle in Ebenezer that Shiloh was destroyed. We know that it's never used as a place of worship again. The ark never returns there. Um, So we don't know exactly what happens, but we know that for for the Philistines at least, they thought that they were just the Mag Daddy. They thought that they had done their job that they had somehow miraculously overcome this god that defeated the egyptians and so they take the ark to their temple and set it up beside their god they do what is customary for that time um, but things don't go exactly as they thought they would because they set it up next to their god and what happens well they come in the next morning and their god is literally face down in a position of worship before the ark of the covenant which is probably not what they intended. So who knows? You know, they could have come up with all sorts of random reasons that their God may have fallen down. Maybe there was a weird earthquake. Maybe the wind blew. Who knows what happened? But they pick him back up, and they set him back on his little throne. And the next night, not only does he fall down, but he's beheaded and literally disarmed before the God of Israel. They may have defeated Israel, but it becomes quite clear to them that they haven't defeated Israel's God. Far from it, in fact. He has defeated theirs and shown himself superior. Like, God did for himself what Israel could not do. He went and he proved that he was better than their best. And he did it in a way that had no other explanation. They're not saying that the armies of Israel crept in and knocked down the God and cut, no. The Ark of the Covenant, the glory of the Lord did this for himself. It says in verse six, the hand of the Lord was heavy, there's that word, against the people of Ashdod and he terrified and afflicted them with tumors, both Ashdod and its territory. So we don't know exactly what these tumors were like. Some. Scholars think that it was like the bubonic plague, maybe some sort of terrible, horrible plague that was accompanied by death and panic and terror, and you do not want to have anything to do with it, according to their reactions. It's nothing good. So the thing with the mice, there, it's a textual issue when it comes to First Samuel. So 1 Samuel is a book where the copy, the Hebrew copy of the Bible, the oldest ones that we have, are not very good. And so 
the Masoretic text, that's the Hebrew copy, does not include this information about the mice. But in the Septuagint, which is a Greek translation of the Hebrew Old Testament that's also very old, it mentions mice in these verses. It says, I wrote it down somewhere. Give me a minute to find it in my notes. The Septuagint's version of chapter 5, 5 verse 6 in English, because I'm not reading it to you in Greek. It says, And the hand of the Lord was heavy upon Ashdod, and he brought evil upon them, and it burst out upon them into the ships, and mice sprang up in the midst of their country, and there was a great and indiscriminate mortality in their city. So, probably the plague was accompanied by mice, which who wants an infestation of mice? (laughs) Who wants that? So I think you can make that assumption because of the Septuagint and because of these golden mice that they make later on, but it's not in the Hebrew copy of the Old Testament. I mean, it's not like they have like a Hebrew-bound book. They have all these old scrolls, and some of them are just pieces of scrolls, and so they're kind of put together to make the best of what we've got. So that's a textual issue. But they have this terrible, horrible plague descend upon them. And what ends up happening is that, you know, they took the Ark of the Covenant to Philistine. I keep wanting to call it Philistine, but it's Philistia. Y'all, I cannot, my brain, I cannot make that happen. So I'm sorry. I'm going to, I'm going to stumble over that every time. Apparently they take it to their country thinking that they're going to kind of make a victory tour. Hey, look, we've defeated Israel. Here's their Ark. We've got their God. They're ours. We own them because we've got their God. And so they think they're going to carry it around from city to city, showing their country how powerful they are. But what ends up happening is the opposite. Everywhere the ark goes, plague, disaster, destruction, mice, death, panic, and chaos. And instead of it being a victory tour for Philistia, it's a victory tour for the Lord. He goes into enemy territory and takes them out while they are completely unaware of what's happening. It says he terrified them. He afflicted them with tumors, both Ashdod and the surrounding areas. And when the men of Ashdod saw how things were, they said, the ark of God, the ark of the God of Israel must not remain with us for his hand is hard against there. There's that heavy word hard against us and against Dagon, our God. So they sent and gathered together all the lords of the Philistines and said, What shall we do with the ark of the God in Israel? They answered, Let the ark of the God of Israel be brought around to Gath. So they brought the ark of the God of Israel there. But after they had brought it around, the hand of the Lord was against the city, causing a very great panic. And he afflicted the men of the city, both young and old, so that tumors break up, broke out on them. So they sent the ark of the God... Ark, too many arks and gods in Israel. Okay. So they sent the ark of God to Ekron. But now you can see that they've heard. They know. And before it even gets there, as soon as it came, the people that, like, they're not waiting around for the plague to show up. They're like, "Mm mm-mm, you can take that on out of here. We don't want that up in our city. Please get it away from us. No, not welcome here. The people of Ekron cried out, they have brought around to us the ark of the God of Israel to kill us and our people. They sent, therefore, and gathered together all the lords of the Philistines and said, Send away the ark of the God of Israel and let it return to its own place, that it may not kill us and our people. 
for there was a deathly panic throughout the whole city. The hand of God was very heavy there. The men who did not die were struck with tumors, and the cry of the city went up to heaven. With no help from Israel at all, zero help, God brings the Philistines to their knees. And he proves that even when it looks like all hope is lost, even when it looks like there is nowhere to go, even when it looks like he is completely defeated, even when Jesus is dead on the cross and in a tomb, when it looks like he's dead, that if it's not good, God's not finished yet, y'all. And when it looks like everything is lost, the glory of the Lord will prevail in the end always. God will accomplish his purposes and his plans in his own ways and in his own time. It is not for us to try to force him into action, to try to manipulate him into following our will, but it's for us to wait patiently and to trust even when we can't see what's happening and we don't understand. Even when to us, it seems like God has left us, seems like we're all alone, seems like there is no hope. Um, we have to trust and to know that God is at work, even when it seems like there's exile going on, that God has not stopped being glorious just because things are bad at the moment. He is God and he is glorious, no matter what things look like. And he demands reverence from all who would encounter him. And that's where we come up to in chapter 6. Verse 1. The ark of the Lord was in the country of the Philistines for seven months. And the Philistines called for the priests and the diviners and said, What shall we do with the ark of the Lord? Tell us with what we shall send it to its place. They said, If you send away the ark of the God of Israel, do not send it empty, but by all means return him a guilt offering. Then you will be healed, and it will be known to you why his hand does not turn away from you. And they said, What is the guilt offering that we shall return to him? They answered, Five golden tumors and five golden mice, according to the number of the lords of the Philistines, for the same plague was on all of you and on your lords. So you must make images of your tumors and images of your mice that ravage the land and give glory to the God of Israel. Perhaps he will lighten his hand from off you and your gods in your land. Why should you harden your hearts as the Egyptians and Pharaoh hardened their hearts? After he had dealt severely with them, did they not send the people away and they departed? So after seven very long months, the Philistines have had enough. They're done. They thought that having the ark proved them victorious over Israel. But over time, they began to see that they weren't victorious at all, that they didn't have anything to do with the victory at the battle that day. And Israel's God was a force that they were unprepared to reckon with. So at the end of the day, they recognized his, support, his superiority and they wanted the ark gone. And they even recognized to some degree their guilt because they know that they have done a terrible thing and that they are being punished for it, for desecrating the ark, for treating it with contempt in a way. And in their own way, they try to make atonement for this terrible thing that they have done. They don't want to be like Pharaoh. 
They don't want to be like the people of Egypt. They don't want to be known as those who harden their hearts against the Lord. Um, instead, they decide to surrender and they send an ark. They devise a plan to send the ark home. Now, the plan that they come up with is kind of crazy, right? And it's details. Did you, did you catch the details that were there? Let's look at them, 7 through 13. Now then, take and prepare a new cart and two milk cows on which there has never come a yoke, and yoke the cows to the cart, but take their calves home away from them. Okay, so you've got milk cows. Now, I'm not like a cow expert or anything. I should have asked Dennis about this, but milk cows don't generally pull carts. So they would have been untrained. They didn't know what they were doing. They weren't used to like working together to make this thing move forward. In addition to that, milk cows have babies. And if you have ever nursed a child, then you know that your body demands that you find your child at a certain time. Well, I'm fairly certain it's the same with cows. Do you know this, Rebecca? (laughs) Yes. When a cow wants to be milked, it lets you know. Because it's uncomfortable, I would assume. Okay, so the cows, every instinct that they had would be telling them to find their babies right now. They would not be going on a road the opposite direction from their babies. So it says, take their calves home away from them. Take the ark of the Lord and place it on the cart and put it in a box at its side, the figures of gold, which you are returning to him as a guilt offering. Then send it off and let it go its way and watch. If it goes up on the way to its own land, to Beth Shemesh, then it is he who has done us this great harm. But if not, then we shall know that it's not his hand that struck us. It happened to us by coincidence. So this is the way that they try to decide if this is God being against them or it just so happened that a plague came upon us at this time and happened to go everywhere that the ark did. So they come up with this elaborate plan. And it says, The men did so. They took two milk cows and yoked them to the cart and shut up their calves at home. And they put the ark of the Lord on the cart and the box with the golden mice and the images of their tumors. And the cows went straight in the direction of Beth Shemesh along one highway, lowing as they went. Mooing the whole time. They were going. They turned neither to the right nor to the left. And the lords of the Philistines went after them as far as the border of Beth Shemesh. Now the people of Beth Shemesh were reaping their wheat harvest in the valley. And when they lifted up their eyes and saw the ark, they rejoiced to see it. So they put the ark on the cart with the cows who were separated from their calves. And they walked straight back to Israel. So it was not a coincidence. It was God. It's the only explanation for what happened is that God and the ark's return to Israel is God coming home. Y'all, what a beautiful picture of God's mercy because we saw how terrible his judgment was against them in chapter four, how awful it was, but he comes back. He does not leave them. Y'all, I'm going to cry. He does not leave them with what they deserved. He comes back to them, even though they didn't deserve it. It's his grace, y'all. He is so good. He is so good to his people, though they have sinned greatly. He is still their God. He has defeated their enemies. He has done for them what they were unable to do on their own. Hello, gospel. He has defeated our enemy. He has done for us what we are unable to do on our own. 
and he has made a way for us to draw near to him. He returned to his people, and they rejoiced while the Philistines stood by and watched. There's no question that it is God who has done this thing and no one else. And at first, when we read in verses 14 and following, it looks like everything is as it should be, right? It says, The cart came into the field of Joshua of Beth Shemesh and stopped there. A great stone was there, and they split up the wood of the cart and offered the cows as a burnt offering to the Lord. And the Levites took down the ark of the Lord and the box that was beside it, in which were the golden figures, and set them on the great stone. And the men of Beth Shemesh offered burnt offerings and sacrificed sacrifices on that day to the Lord. And when the five lords of the Philistines saw it, they returned that day to Ekron. These are the golden tumors that the Philistines returned as a guilt offering to the Lord, one for Ashdod, one for Gaza, one for Ashkelon, one for Gath, one for Ekron, and the golden mice, according to the number of all the cities of the Philistines belonging to the five lords, both fortified cities and unwalled villages. The great stone beside which they set down the ark of the Lord is a witness to this day in the field of Joshua Beth Shemesh. So the ark comes back, and there's lots of rejoicing. They're super excited. There happen to be some Levites there who know how to handle the ark. They take the ark down. They prepare sacrifices. They do a lot of things the right way. But then something goes terribly wrong. Again, it's like they just can't seem to get it right. In verse 19, it says, And he struck some of the men of Beth Shemesh, because they looked upon the ark of the Lord. He struck 70 men of them, and the people mourned because the Lord had struck the people with a great blow. So even on this day, when it's supposed to be a day of rejoicing because the ark has returned home, there's still some tragedy. And we see that even after everything that has happened, they still have a long way to go. They're not where they need to be yet. They still don't understand who God is and who they are in relation to him. They have forgotten their place. At least some of them have. And it stands as a warning to everyone else. It says that they looked upon the ark. Um, They had lost their sense of awe, their sense of wonder, their sense of fear. They were far too familiar with the Lord. Um, this is the beginning of, I guess, their education in the ways of God. God is beginning to restore their sense of his glory because it had been lost. They still didn't truly fear the Lord or respect his authority. At best, they were simply ignorant, like they just didn't know because they had never been taught, because their leadership was not good. At worst, they were knowingly irreverent, like they knew better but did it anyway um, because they didn't think that it was really that big of a deal. But either way, they learned a hard lesson that day, and this is the lesson that they learned. We see it in verse 20. Who is able to stand before the Lord, this holy God? Who is able to stand before him? Well, the answer is no one. No one is. They have the same response as the Philistines do, by the way. Get this thing away from us. We are not worthy of this. And so they send it off to another part, to Kiriath-Jerim, telling them that the Philistines have returned the ark. And the men of Kiriath-Jerim came and took the ark of the Lord and brought it to the house of Abinadab on the hill. And they consecrated his son Eleazar to have control of the ark of the Lord. From the day that the ark was lodged at Kiriath-Jerim, a long time passed. So 
some 20 years. And all the house of Israel lamented after the Lord. 20 years, y'all. That's a long time. The ark stays there until David comes and gets it and takes it to Jerusalem 20 years later. But the question that they asked that day is one that should resound with us. Who is able to stand before the Lord? Because it's the heart of the gospel. It's the point. is that God is holy. God is glorious. He is unmatched in his power. He's unmatched in his glory. He's unmatched in his holiness. And no one can stand before him. No one at all. At least not of our own accord. Only by the blood of Jesus can our hands be washed clean, our hearts be made pure, so that we can stand before the Lord and lift up our hands and worship. It's only by His grace. It's His mercy, His righteousness, His blood that covers up our unrighteousness and makes us worthy, makes it possible for us to draw near. Hebrews chapter 10, verses 19 through 23. You know, Hebrews is all about... Um, the old ways that have been superseded by Jesus, how the old sacrificial system is not necessary anymore, how Jesus is better than those old ways that they were dealing with then. And this is why Jesus is better. It says, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, they had no confidence. But we, through Jesus, have confidence to enter the holy places by Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain. He tore the curtain that separated the Holy of Holies, the Ark of the Covenant that protected us from the glory of God. He ripped that curtain in two because with his blood covering us, it's not necessary anymore. He opened a way through the curtain. And since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart and full assurance of faith with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering for he who promised is faithful. Let's remember the things that they forgot. They forgot that God keeps his word or maybe they just forgot the word. They forgot their place, who they were, and who God was. They forgot the splendor of his glory, the, the fire of his wrath. They forgot those things. They forgot that God will not share his glory with another. They forgot um, that he's not something to be trifled with. He's not a good luck charm to bring out whenever you need it. He is the Lord God Almighty, um, and he demands reverence from anyone who would draw near. And what we'll see as we move on through Samuel is a long, slow journey to understanding this God, their God, and what it means to be his people, um, what he wants in a king, what he demands of his people, and um, where to go from there. But I, I want to close with this. I have read this quote before many times from The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, C.S. Lewis. Um, it's a favorite. I like keep this marker on this particular page because it just is such a good reminder of God and his character and who he is and what that means for us. So are you all familiar with The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, the Chronicles of Narnia? 
So these four children, they travel to this magical land of Narnia where the world is different than it is here. And it's ruled by a king, Aslan, who has been away for quite some time. And the land is frozen, literally. There is an evil queen ruling over them. And these children are hearing about the king Aslan, but they don't know him. But they're hearing about him from the beavers who are just trying to tell them about Aslan. So Susan, one of the daughters, asks, Shall we see him? Why, that's what I brought you here for. I'm to lead you to where you shall meet him, said Mr. Beaver. Is he a man? asked Lucy. Aslan, a man, said Mr. Beaver sternly. Certainly not. I tell you, he's the king of the wood and the son of the great emperor beyond the sea. Don't you know who is the king of beasts? Aslan is a lion, the lion, the great lion. Oh, said Susan, I thought he was a man. Is he quite safe? I shall feel rather nervous about meeting a lion. That you will, dearie, and no mistake, said Mrs. Beaver. If there's anyone who can appear before Aslan without their knees knocking, they're either braver than most or just silly. Then he isn't safe, said Lucy. Safe, said Mr. Beaver. Don't you hear what Mrs. Beaver tells you? Who said anything about safe? Of course he isn't safe. But he's good. He's the king, I tell you. So these chapters that we read tonight, they're sobering. Um, but they're also a beautiful picture of God's majesty and his glory on full display. He is fierce and he is strong and fearful in his glory. But he's good. He is so good. And we would do well to remember that. All of that. Because that's who he is.